0: Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for Product Managers, Leaders, and Innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in.
1: Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products customers love. In this discussion, we address what it means to properly incorporate UX into your product work. This is not merely making things look better. This is deeply understanding the user experience that creates greater value, beating competitors and delighting customers. Joining us is Mark Baldino, UX product design expert and co-founder of Fuzzy Math. They design software products for companies. Mark has over 20 years of experience implementing human-centered design to solve difficult problems. And remember, if you hear anything that you want to go back to during the discussion, we take detailed notes for you. You'll find those at the slash 337, including a one-page action guide you can download to help you put into action what you hear. Now, let's talk with Mark. Mark, thanks for joining the podcast.
0: You bet, Chad. Thank you very much for having me.
1: I'm interested and excited to be talking about UX, user experience. That is a topic that goes well with product management because we're trying to create products that create value for customers, and that involves the user experience. So we are going to dive into that. Help us out first, just kind of by setting the stage here. Why should UX be part of product strategy from your perspective?
0: As you mentioned, you're trying to unlock customer value and provide customer value. And I think there's no better way than aligning your, frankly, your entire organization, but in particular, a product team and a technical team to be more in alignment with the voice of their customers. And I think a lot of people spend time on like the marketing side. How do we get people into our product? What does our funnel look like? And we listen to voice of the customer who are, who are new customers and how do we get them to sign up? That's only one, that's only one part to be truly aligned. You need to ensure that the product, the digital product or service you're offering is actually in true alignment with your customers throughout the life cycle of them using that application. Mm-hmm. I think that, that part, that second half is more important. It's what we do. And uh, I think it gets overlooked sometimes.
1: So does that alignment issue also extend inside the organization, right? So we're, we're aligning with the voice of the customer, and I find some organizations are more siloed than others and that products can sometimes even get created in silos. Maybe we don't really have a cross-functional team where UX might get, you know, in a sense, kind of bolted on at the beginning or maybe even at the, the, at the end in some way. How do you see this helping with alignment of that, the internal work, too?
0: That's the biggest challenge, right? It's, the, it's generally the people challenge and their capacity and ability for change within an organization. You hit, you hit the nail on the head. UX will get, will get bolted on at times. We're going to do a little bit of listening at the front, and um, we're going to do our design work. And then at the end, we're going to listen for you know customer service requests, complaints. A, a lot of organizations only contact their customers at, during sales and during support, and not at all in between. And there's a lot of reason for that, but I think it's a ton of fear. Because at the end of the day, they're they're scared to listen to their customers and make product decisions based on that knowledge in an ongoing fashion to continue that alignment. And there's a lot of internal processes and procedures that get in that get in the way. Right? We have we have subject matter experts, or you hear a lot. We are users of the tool. The co-founder started this because he had a problem himself, and this is an intern This is sort of this internal echo chamber, and they're really afraid to go ahead and. Invest in listening to their customers as they actually use the tool. And that's a, that's a shame because yes, sales is important and support is important, but there's no, no greater way to reduce churn on software than, than making it more effective and efficient for users daring. you if you're only doing it in sales and support, you're really missing the middle. So having people adjust how their approach and, and listen and start to rely on what we call the user or customer centered design process is a big change because we can gather as much data as we want. But if we can't get teams in inside aligned and moving in the same direction, it's really not going to impact any change.
1: So alignment is important. And we know for as product managers, getting those cross functions working well together is important. And having UX a part of this does help us improve that the, the value that customers see from our products. And I think the you made a point about, you know, sometimes we're scratching our, our own itch, right? So founders often are starting an organization, starting a, a company with a product that is fixing a problem for themselves, right? And as product managers, hopefully we're a little bit better at, at, about stepping outside of that and getting more in touch with our customer. Because I know lots of, lots of founders who... Were scratching their own itch, brought this beautiful, so they thought, product to market and found out it solves their problem really well, but not too many other people's. Exactly. Understanding who we're solving the problem for is pretty important. Let's talk about it, how to actually get uh, UX more integrated then into the organization and maybe not thinking of it just as the bolt-on, but really being part of product strategy. Um, and I'm sure you're involved in this and helping organizations that maybe have no UX now, or maybe they're, it's not very effective. So how do we go about changing this to make UX more effective in organizations with our product strategy?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. We we do both. We help people start up internal UX organizations and groups and understand the value and, and integrate it. But a lot of times it's underperforming UX teams that are really in these cycles of I have to respond to developer's requests and I'm doing a lot of spot designs and quick updates I'm working at a at a very feature specific level and so the way the best way to get out of that what I'd call kind of that developer design trap cycle is you have to you have to level up and and inevitably there needs to be some investment and understanding of the approach and process I find our best partners are product managers and product teams because they value listening to customers, maybe more than some other groups in an organization, and they want to make informed decisions. So if I'm trying to pitch why they should do it, it is all about having research backed information to guide your decisions. And so um, that means investing time and energy into talking to current and potential customers, watching them use the tools and creating a series of artifacts that Communicate a vision or breathe life into an idea—that's the power of design. It's—it's it's not the of user-centered design. It's not just that we go out and talk to customers and we bring that knowledge in. And we, it's that we end up telling stories and we do journey maps and personas and we we do concepts and, and images and UI. It's a pretty unique skill set, and to do it right is hard. But when you're able to do that, you can tell a really cohesive story about the future of of a product and. Nine times out of 10, that gets product and engineering in full alignment with how to move forward. Mm -hmm. And one other trick or technique is to involve these cross-functional teams in the process. Pull them into the research process. Pull them into the synthesis and concepting. We do a ton of co-creative workshops with engineers. We have them sketching UI based on defined customer needs that we've learned in research. And when they can sort of draw the line from research to synthesis to a concept to, okay, I'm going to get a refined design at the end of the day from a designer and build it. They understand that cycle a lot better. So um, there's a few sort of tips and techniques, but it's really about getting people out of this cycle of here's a feature, let's design it, let's build it, let's build it, let's design it, which happens all the time because people look at their quarterly plan and what they have to sort of get executed over the next three months. And it's hard for them to sort of level up a little bit.
1: Do you tend to work with the software products, physical products, all over the place? Well, it's all
0: digital, actually. Generally, SaaS-based software or legacy software that's kind of moving, you know, through a cloud shift and then maybe into a into a, a SaaS plat, uh, sort of platform, or it's mm-hmm. kind of an under underperforming SaaS product, but it's all
1: digital products and services. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious for, for context here. I think yeah. many of the concepts we are talking about apply other areas, right? If it's a, we're talking about how does a user enter data in a system and see that data represented, or are they doing it on a, you know, maybe this is a hardware, software product we have, are they doing it on a physical device, like maybe a medical imaging device and having to interact? I I ask that in part because of, we're not just talking about making things prettier, right? This isn't UI art, artwork, right? We're trying to make things more effective so the user gets more
0: value. 100%. It's all about the workflow, first and foremost. We, we do some consumer facing work, but you know, frankly, a lot of our work is in the enterprise and business to business space. So people need to use these tools to get their jobs done. And we have done embedded digital tools in imaging devices, actually. So there is this sense of greater sense of context, or we've designed ERP tools for people that are using a tablet on a manufacturing floor. Right. And so the sense of context and the physical space is important. For our understanding, but what we're working with generally is 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 a workflow somebody needs to get through, and that's where you can accre, increase efficiency and effectiveness of of a tool.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and make this work the way that people expect it to work, and hopefully take out some steps in the process for them as well. You talked about this kind of being you know a research based decision making, and as product managers, we're certainly getting more accustomed to data driven decisions. And you, you threw out some names of tools in the process there. Just go through that a little bit with us, you know, the, the kinds of tools that you find that are helpful in UX.
0: So we use a mix of qualitative and quantitative research. So the, qual- I'll start with the quantitative, because it's generally like a survey tool, and we're trying to measure customer or user satisfaction as you're using a tool. There's a method called SuperQ, and it's just a standardized set of questions that Ask the user to gauge the tool, sort of from a design UI perspective, from a feature and function perspective, and there's also an NPS Net Promoter Score type question, which is, would you refer um, somebody to this tool? So, a general, you know, how how good are we doing from a, a product perspective? And so, we'll run those surveys in a longitudinal manner, and do that at the beginning of our work after our work is done, and then kind of on a quarterly basis. So you're getting a good pulse within an organization. And that level of quantitative data, I think, speaks well to product managers and kind of up, right? And through the organization, we're starting to track Our work that we're doing to larger metrics and KPIs within the organization. But a lot of our research is qualitative, which is we're talking to less tools and less, let's um, have some good interview uh, interviews with users. They usually are a mix of open ended question and answer where we're kind of discussing what's a day in the life like for you. Back when people traveled and were in offices, we would go to an office or a shop floor. We do some observation and, and, and pull some people aside and do some interviews. And then if there's an existing tool that we're trying to improve, we do a little bit of a, a kind of a light usability study where we're kind of watching them use it. And we use what's called the think aloud method, cognitive walkthrough, where somebody says exactly what they're doing without the researcher interrupting them. Because you just want to kind of watch, how are they using the tool? Where are they running into issues? Where are there some accelerators you know, in the tool? We're always looking to amplify the good parts of a tool and then sort of remove some of the barriers or, or sticking points. And then out of that, some of the most interesting work I think we do is, is this storytelling. And so some of the tools and techniques are personas, which is an archetype of a user. And so that just sort of tells the day in life story. What are their pains? Um, what are their goals? How are they using the tool? And then we do journey maps, which, which are. Pretty interesting because they can be kind of uh, cross product or cross ecosystem. It'll tell kind of this story of how somebody uses the tool, what they're thinking, what are their pains, goals, and, and gains at each step along the way. And we use those to sort of, instead of a, a large research report, which we sometimes do for clients, it gives, it puts a picture in front of cross functional team of who their users truly are. We like to highlight what the assumptions were going in and maybe what we validated as an assumption is true or not. And then we get this picture from a journey perspective of, of what it looks like to use the software. And as I mentioned, where are the highlights that we can really amplify and where are there some pain points in this journey that we can solve for? And I just think that gives them a concrete picture that's, I'll say, research-backed because it's based on us um, spending time with our customers and is a more informed picture and more often than not, it really allows teams to get, get on the same page and make consistent decisions moving forward.
1: Yeah, those are very helpful design tools that we learn more about our customer. A couple I just want to highlight with you, you know the, the observations and interviews. It's so fascinating when you observe someone accomplishing their task, doing their workflow, right? And they're using a system that you're trying to improve. And maybe somewhere in that workflow, they go and pull a notebook open, or they look at, look at the Post-it note, or they're they're using something else that, that you go, oh, we we missed something in our system that could be helping them save time that we need to add there. I, I love observation st- studies. And the dr- customer journey maps are so helpful, too, because not only are they focused on the customer, but you kind of see what the, the elements that are going on behind the scenes that make that Customer action possible, and all the different interactions, and it pulls together more of the story than you sometimes you think about when you're accomplishing a, a task a workflow.
0: Uh, you're, you're exactly right. I think the observational studies are are amazing. Exactly what you just mentioned, getting this con- context of of use, whether somebody's in an operating theater or they're sitting at a desk and they have these post-it notes. What's fascinating is is two things about. It they've learned an observation that the first is how people use tools is not how we think they use tools. So we're always learning. And specifically when we're doing work on a legacy tool where it's maybe a, a green screen or a terminal screen, someone's ability to hold up a piece of paper, look at it, not look at their screen and, and pound in, in a terminal environment with, with sort of hotkeys is insanely effective. And, and I think a lot of people and you alluded to it earlier. Think design is making things prettier. So, oh, we have to take this tool, which is a, a green a green screen or a terminal. We need to make it as ni- nice as possible. We need to create lots of white space. It looks commercial great and look like an Apple product, right? But somebody who's sitting there who's really efficient in their current tool and doesn't actually even need to look at the screen, you know, that tells us a very specific story, and we have to honor that story when we move the tool off of as a legacy platform into you know into a more modern technology stack and a more modern design. The other thing is when you Can pull stakeholders into those sessions or have them watch those sessions or do some, you know, do some pull quotes and some, some pull videos. It's really illuminating if you can pepper in this journey with some actual human beings talking about it. If you Uh want to get a a founder who's built a tool for themselves out of that mindset, have them watch, I don't know, two hours of users trying to use the tool and and really struggling with it, and they'll instantly see um, that who they are is different from who they're designing for. And it's really this moment of, of, of empathy and empathetic design. And that's our whole goal is to get teams to empathize better with their customers so that they can build tools that, that end up meeting their needs.
1: Yeah. And these design tools, you know, I'm familiar with the design tools and have used them in practice. And yet I find if I'm working with a UX person through this, That they have deeper insights than I have, right? And I think that's just, there's some genetic wiring there that makes us good at certain things. And I I appreciate the insights I get, like from observation studies, are powerful, but a UX person will see things a little bit differently and adds value to that process. I think so. I hope so. I mean, that's my, well, well, uh, obviously you guys are doing that, right? (laughs) right. No, for sure.
0: And I think it is. I actually think UX is, is a fairly trainable skill. The UI side of the world we do is there's some people who can build UIs and some people who can't. But I do think that the UX side of the world is a trainable set of skills. I think that's why product managers and product teams become our best partners because they can, they can learn through osmosis from working mm-hmm. alongside our team and learn how to pull out some of those, those um, insights. But hey, it's our job to be in digital design day in and day out. And we're fortunate to be able to do that other people we work with at clients they can't spend as much time thinking about design right we're thinking about ux they have a number of other priorities so if we can help them really dial in in the time we're spending with them and pull some ideas out of them that's great because they're generally going to know their product better than than we are um because they've been in it for a while and so if we can take our fresh eyes approach their sort of institutional knowledge and mirror that with some customer research it's a really good blend for idea generation and so our our i really do see Our process is, yes, explaining this customer journey, but the step after the journey is about opportunity identification, and that we always do in a co-creative fashion, and I think that's where some of the most powerful insights come out.
1: We'll hear more insights from Mark in just a moment. This podcast is sponsored by the RPM Experience, the Rapid Product Master Experience. (laughs) product managers, teams, and leaders become product masters, creating more value for customers, their organization, and themselves. It takes place over nine weeks, meeting 75 minutes a week virtually to build a broad foundation of product management knowledge, getting everyone on the same page, while also improving collaboration and renewing a focus on the customer. Now participants feel empowered and more confident about their work and how they create value for customers and their organization. Further, RPM Experience 2.0 was recently released, which is a 100% update to the entire experience, making it work even more effectively than before. Many organizations have already benefited from the RPM Experience, and you'll find them listed at the Everyday rpm Go to the same URL, the Everyday rpm and schedule time to talk about how it can help you and your organization as well. Now back to Mark. For a physical product, one of the, my favorite examples about what you can find out through observation studies, uh, this was some time ago, it was a market research group looking at tractors, farm tractors, right? Okay. And so they went. They had a focus group in this little little town with all the people that had their farm tractor. And one guy who was there said, I love it, don't change anything, it's perfect. And then they followed up, went to his house, and he said, I love it, don't change anything. And while they were there, they said, "You, know, do, you do you mind just showing us your tractor? And so they went out and looked at it. He had made 20 custom modifications to make his tractor perfect, which is why he doesn't want anything changed, right? And just that difference between what they were hearing and what they actually saw was powerful, but you still need a a designer now to do something with this information. Thanks for discussing some of the, the tools there with us. So let's say we're sold on this. We need a, a, a stronger UX capability. We want to line this uh, into our product work better. It sounds like this is going to slow things down. Tell tell me why we're not going to take longer to get products to market.
0: Well, I don't want to lie to you. There are new parts of the process, right? And you have to be mm-hmm. upfront about that. And so the way we approach it is what is the cost of not doing this? What, what is the business, frankly, suffering from? Because you're not spending time with your customers. Because you're not making informed decisions. Now, I can point to ROI of UX. Gartner did a study a few years back. It was, you know, for every dollar spent, you get 10 back. I mean, that's amazing ROI. If I could, if I could actually get that for all my customers, fantastic. I think it's closer to, to, you know, three or four dollars. That's still pretty good. That's, that's twice as much. So, but to make that case, you have to be willing to make the commercial or the financial case for the work, which is, we are we have a decrease in efficiency of our team we're doing a lot of rework our customer support numbers are super high our customer satisfaction is going down we are missing sales i mean that's a a lot of underperformance comes from sales right i don't know if you've ever looked for software that's not commercial software, and you go to the website and you cannot find a picture. You can't find a screenshot of the software, but you know it's a digital product. They're selling it. It's generally a business-to-business or enterprise software. That was a perfect client for me because I know at the end of the day that when they go into make a sale, they try as hard as possible to pull up a checkbox of all their features and how they compare against their competitors, but they don't want to show the tool at all. And they wait until the very end of that sales session to pull up the tool. And they know when the client sees it, the prospect sees it, it's going to look it's going to look awful, and it's going to look really even worse. It's going to be harder to use, and so there are these key points of pain from a business perspective. That's I mean I, I'm generally talking to business leaders who are suffering, you know, mm-hmm. some immense financial pain and personal pain. And then I want to talk to team members, product teams. What is it costing all of you? And if you can start to understand the cost of not doing the work and where it's put the business, which is probably you know installed growth or they went through a big. Peak and now they're you know coming back down from that peak. You can demonstrate that the the um, cost of not doing anything is actually greater, and that there is going to be a period of time where it's going to slow down because we are going to inject a new process here, which is some research and constant just process I just discussed is going to happen up front. The best way to avoid that, from my experience, is to start running in parallel paths. So on an engagement, or if you're going to try to embrace UX, pick a pilot project that you can run in parallel to execute what we call user-centered design, the true UX process, while continuing to do incremental updates to the tool. So you're not actually injecting a quarter pause, but you're going to do it in parallel. It takes a little bit, it takes a little bit longer to get the endpoint of both of those, but you do it in a proactive way so that you're not slowing everything down then you have an internal case study that you can bring to the team and show hey we've been doing it this way this was the result we took a we took some extra time here on this pilot project and this was the result and the process is going to result in a better product with happier users and it's going to re- require less coding and and rework it's going to be a much smoother process from start to finish and then you can kind of build that case so I sort of avoided your question, which was, you know, how are we not going to, how are we not going to slow down? You probably are a little bit, but it's about understanding what's, what's the uh, cost of doing nothing and continuing to do things as is. And frankly, if the cost isn't there, then you don't need to do it, right? Like if we don't have a great cost to not doing anything, there's not a, maybe a need for UX services. But in most cases there there are. There are business considerations that are causing this. And so we have to demonstrate it. And then there's some tics, tip, tips and tricks of, of getting it installed in an organization without fully shutting down the, the assembly line.
1: It's just the same as if we are moving to an agile process, if that is new for us. We expect things to be slower as we make that adoption. And then we, we see improvements from doing so later. Uh, and that the Gartner study, you, you referenced, uh, you know, 10X to help, you know, 10X is a big deal if we just by bringing in the UX, if we can get that improvement. And I know there's been examples, one I was thinking of in a very large company that we all recognize. The product managers did a lot of A-B testing between the onboarding approach for the user interface of the software. And they were they were really struggling with with a few key issues. And I am confident that a designer, a UX person would have looked at that and said, no, your, your B approach is garbage. And this is what we need to fix to your A approach. And I don't know how many weeks they spent, you know, getting to a point where they knew that it had something that wasn't working. Right. So the, I know there's opportunities in this process to also sp- speed up some of the decisions that are being made. You bet. In terms of the, this parallel path, right, how, how do we get this started? I just want to make that a, a little bit more concrete f- for all of us. What are we bringing in, putting in place? Like, say, I have an ongoing project now. We're going from version two uh, of our product to version three. Uh, it's a s- software product in this context. And we, we recognize that you know, sales are not going the right direction. Customer service calls are coming up. So we want to add UX to help see if we can address those problems. What do we put in place to start getting that done? How do we run it in parallel for a while? I
0: mean, what you're essentially adding is a listening device, a voice of the customer program. Now, my guess is you're getting feedback in sales. These organizations are getting feedback during sales and they're getting they have angry, unhappy customers in support, right? But they're not talking to the happy customers and they're not observing them. And so what you are is you're installing a number of listening devices in the tool. If you can get in-app analytics, that's another tool. So Google Analytics, but in a signed-in experience. There's some tools out there that do this well. It can be harder. A lot of our clients don't have in-app analytics, so they don't have any way to actually monitor how people are using the tool. But that's one. And then you're starting to introduce research. So you're introducing this quantitative longitudinal studies. You're folding in some some user interviews. And that's going to happen in a batch at the start, to be quite honest. So there is a period of discovery that needs to happen to understand what the experience is now, how it's aligning with best practices for UX and usability. So we generally do a series of scorecards based on our experience in the industry. Hey, this is a SaaS-based product that's meeting these SaaS UX criteria. It's meeting these um, visual design criteria. And we're pairing that with some, some actual user research uh, and talking to customers. We kind of bring that back to, to the team. And so this is a brand new process for a lot of organizations, which is formalizing a voice of the customer program that is holistic through customer lifecycle. Some people are better about gathering the data. Some people need a lot of, of help there, but it is bringing all that data together into a, a kind of common lens that the team can make decisions on. And so if it's happening in a parallel path, maybe it's for you want to pick one feature, right? If it's a full redesign, Great, but that's going to be a bigger. You're going to need more discovery, right? So it's you want to take a bite of the apple that you think the business can ab- can absorb from a from a time frame. Maybe you're not starting on the highest value because you want to vet this process and understand. I mean, one of the we kind of think of UX in 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 three ways in terms of alignment with the organization. There's the people, there's the process, and there's the purpose of a UX organization. So the people is an introduction of of new new team members or, re, or maybe some product people are going to join the UX team as researchers or something like that but you have to have the right people um in the right seats doing the right right things which is this user centered design process and and then there's a sense of purpose which is is this UX team aligned with the product team and the development team and the larger organization? And over the course of this pilot project, you want to work on all of those components. So new people doing a new process, which the newest part, frankly, is the research, but I can cover some other parts. And then are they aligned with the bigger bigger vision? Because a lot of people equate UX with UI. Hey, we have bad sales. We just got to make this thing look prettier. But there's a lot of complexity in software. It's not about being pretty. So when we get out of research and concepting the fun stuff, we go into a very heavy period of information architecture and process flows. So we're really doing navigation systems and flows, how people move from one page to the next in a tool. We'll do current state and future state, and really just removing roadblocks in the tool itself. So it's almost like we're putting the blueprints together for the product before we get to any any UI work. And then we start a low-fidelity design, again, probably a new part of the process for people. This is actually a blueprint, a black and white version of, of pages. And we do usability testing at that level. So we're kind of diving back into the research to learn at a really low fidelity of design. And then finally, we move to high-fidelity design, which is what people think UX is, which is the UI. So we start working with fonts and colors. But there's a whole part of that process that's discovery, synthesis, information architecture and process design, and low-fidelity design and usability testing that comes before you get to your high-fidelity designs to hand over to development. Mm -hmm. So uh, it sounds like a lot. It can be a lot. But that's why I think finding a bite-sized piece is the best way to, to vet the process in an organization.
1: Yeah. And I like the suggestion of doing it in parallel because that gives you options, right? As, as decision makers in the organization, we now have options to say what we're going to actually pursue when we can bring things in, make changes. 100%. Um, and that low fidelity design, that, that is what we need as product managers, because we need to understand we're actually accomplishing the problem that customers want accomplished and do that in a way that they say, yes, that's something that creates me value. And I will pay for that. So very, very important work. Okay, so that's all, all most helpful. Uh, think a little bit about how to get UX working a little bit better on our product teams, bring it in if we don't have it, or better align it if we, if we need to do so. As listeners know, we love an innovation quote around here. What do you have for us? And tell us a little bit about what that means to you.
0: Sure. The quote I have for you is from Yvonne Chenard who is the founder of Patagonia. He wrote a book, I think 12 years ago, called Let My People Go Surfing. And it was all his business sort of philosophy and and personal ethos and and ethical responsibility in business. But a bunch of quotes, it's one of my favorite business books. But the one quote that really stands out to me is, the sooner a company tries to be what it is not, the sooner it tries to, quote, have it all, the sooner it will die. And for me as a business owner, it's all about staying true to our core. I can go chase um, a bunch of side services or side products. Something that's a big shiny, you know, shiny object over to the side. Maybe a maybe a marquee client that if we changed how we work or our set of services, they would bring us on board. And I think it's a great reminder that anytime time I've tried to do that, I've I've failed and and I've steered the company in the in the wrong direction. What it doesn't say is don't try new things and don't. You know, there's a larger context of the quote. We talks about you can go to the edge and you can peer over the edge and you can push yourself to those limits. But you shouldn't jump over. You shouldn't jump over that edge. We shouldn't go too far because when you try to do too much for too many people, I think it's really, really hard. There are successful businesses that have grown in that manner, but I think it's really hard for entrepreneurs and innovators to not stay true to their core. So at our core, we're a user experience design consultancy. We don't build anything, but whenever I talk to people, they're like, why don't you do development? You'd be able to increase the company size. You'd be able to increase the clients that would come to you. People need full service. We are a niche consultancy. We provide true value to our clients by being that niche consultancy. And I could be a bigger company, but I'd be a different company. And if we want to stay true to the values that we have in our organization, it's really by staying true to what we're really good at and what we're interested in, in doing.
1: It's a challenge, right? As you're growing what to focus on, but staying focused on that vision that you have and making it clear to people what you're good at and not venturing into areas that would confuse them is really, really important. Where can people find out more about the work that you're doing, Mark, and the organization there?
0: Everything. I've been running Fuzzy Math for, for 12 years, so everything's at FuzzyMath.com. Um, we have a Twitter feed. Uh, we have a newsletter, which I would encourage people to sign up for. We just send once one a month. It's all original content, um, I think really relevant. And then we include some interesting design articles as well for people that don't spend every day uh, thinking about design. So head to our website and um, subscribe to our newsletter, and you'll be able to learn more about Fuzzy Math
1: excellent and that's why we're talking you have some good free resources for people to learn more about ux and how to get this uh, working better in their product teams and obviously they can reach out if they want more help mark thanks so much thank you chad thanks again for listening to this podcast this is where product leaders and managers become product masters gaining practical knowledge influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love find a written summary of everything we discussed at the everyday innovator.com slash 337 keep innovating
0: Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.